My name is Jamie Fall, and I serve as Director of Upskill America here at the Aspen Institute. It's a great honor and privilege for me to be in that position. I've loved doing this work over the last four and a half years, and I just want to thank all of you, uh, uh, the familiar faces and the new folks in the crowd who have been a part of this uh, movement over our uh, time together, and uh, we just greatly appreciate your partnership and all that you've done uh, in the upskilling movement. So uh, I will say that I'm really encouraged over the last uh, five years with the number of companies that have joined the upskilling movement and are now engaged in the work that we do and allowing us to engage in the work that they do. But uh, you know what? Uh, uh, we need more. This isn't the work isn't done. We're not here to congratulate congratulate ourselves on what's been done over the last five years. We're here really to look forward and think about what else needs to be done and how we can continue working together. So I wanted to mention briefly three different ways that you can engage with Upskill America if you would like to be a more engaged part of the Upskilling Network. First of all, and we heard a couple of panelists mention it earlier today, uh, which we greatly appreciate, uh, there's a, a number of uh, resources available on our website that we've developed over the last five years that we would encourage you to, uh, to take a look at. We have an Upskilling Playbook for Employers that we developed to help employers understand different models of how they can go about uh, upskilling. We also developed a set of tools uh, with a grant from Walmart, a set of nine tools to help companies as they think about different ways to create, expand, or improve uh, their upskilling programs. You can also spend time on our website and really follow what different companies are doing. We try to keep current on new initiatives that are rolled out and uh, thought leadership around the topic of upskilling. And of course, if you aren't already part of the upskilling network, we would encourage you to, uh, to sign up on our website as well. Another way that you can really help is help us grow our network. As I said, we need more employers engaged. Our network, we're pleased to say, has grown from a handful back when uh, Upskill America was originally rolled out five years ago today to well over 5,000 companies and organizations. But we want more people to be involved and more businesses engaged because we have a lot more work to do, frankly. So uh, if you're an employer, we would welcome your uh, participation and your engagement. We also need more economic development and workforce development leaders, as well as intermediaries who help bring the groups uh, together with educators to provide upskilling uh, programs. And then finally, uh, we ask that you share what you're learning. The initiative has been around now for five years. We know a number of programs have been up and going, and we really need to continue to share what, we're, what we've learned and what we're struggling with. Uh, there was a group of companies this morning that met uh, earlier, about a dozen companies that really talked in a great deal of detail about what they've learned over the last uh, five years, what's going well, what they're struggling with, and uh, things that they're thinking about in the future. And that is a group that, of companies called the Upskill America Leadership Circle. And if that sort, if you're a business, and that sort of dialogue and opportunity to sit down with other uh, companies focused on the same issues of, is of interest to you, uh, please see me later. I would love to visit with you more about that, uh, the Upskill America Leadership Circle. So finally, uh, I would like to introduce our panel. We have another outstanding panel that I'm really uh, pleased to have with us here today, looking at the value of local and regional education and training uh, partnerships and what leaders at all levels can do to create an ecosystem that encourages employer and education partnerships that lead to a skilled workforce. 
the full bio of each speaker is in your uh, folder, so I'm not going to bother to read those, but I will introduce them uh, so you can have a, a face with a name. So uh, uh, starting here, uh, Daryl Graham is Senior Vice President of Philanthropy, Strata Education Network. We've had the pleasure of working with Daryl and his team at Strata as they've studied and highlighted effective employer-led education and training partnerships around the country, and I know you'll enjoy hearing more about uh, his work. Amanda Winters is Program Director, Economic Opportunity Center for Best Practices at the National Governors Association. And we're pleased that she brings her national lens to this discussion, understanding how governors and their administrations are implementing policies and contributing to these partnerships. And Reg Javier, Deputy Executive Officer, San Bernardino County, California. Reg brings the unique viewpoint of someone who has responsibility for both economic development and workforce development in the largest geographic county in the U.S. And then finally, Lauren Weber, we're so happy to have you with us as well. Thank you. Uh, she's with the Wall Street Journal and she's here to moderate our panel. Lauren writes about employment and workplace issues for the journal and we're uh, honored that you can be here as well as all of our panelists. So Lauren, at this time, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you. from several large corporations about their reskilling programs. I've written in depth about some of those, and uh, especially Accenture's program. I believe they're investing a billion dollars in, in training programs, which is an enormous amount. But uh, most companies don't have those kinds of resources at their fingertips to put into these programs or the staff to create them. And often those companies have to rely on local and regional partnerships because they need other stakeholders to be involved and help design programs and help the things you might want to talk about those. Um, so I'm glad we have three practitioners here uh, who can talk about what those look like, some of the best practices, common mistakes that are made. And we're also looking forward to having some questions from the audience later. Um, so I am, well, I think, you know, just like all politics is local, all job markets are local. And so, there are big differences in probably even within one county like San Bernardino, which is the largest county in the United States, as I learned. Um, you can have very diverse needs in, you know, and so things have to, programs have to be quite specific. And I'm curious about what role each of you within your organizations play in creating those and facilitating those. So I think Meg, uh, sorry, Amanda, we'll start with you. Just okay. tell us like, what, what role does the state play in trying to create effective partnerships? Okay, great. I'll just tell you a little bit about myself quickly and then um, the role that I play at my organization. Um, as was mentioned, my name is Amanda Winters. I'm Program Director for Post-Secondary Education at the National Governors Association Center for Best Practices. So we are the technical assistance and consultative arm of the National Governors Association. Um, so what we do every day is try to find opportunities to bring resources to governors to solve a lot of problems that they are facing or opportunities that they are facing. Um, and one of those big ones that's, um, that's been a focus for us is um, the future workforce. So um, it's been a huge area of focus for the Center for Best Practices and my division, which is the Economic Opportunity Division. It combines uh, post-secondary education, workforce, economic development, and human services. And that's the way we see how we should approach 
uh, a lot of these issues, not just from a post-secondary perspective, but from a holistic perspective of what are all the assets out there, who do we need to draw upon, who should be at the table, how can we support people in getting better opportunities uh, to get out of poverty. So that's really a focus of the work that we do. Um, so some of the ways in which we're helping states address some of these issues. Um, a couple projects that live in my world um, are a focus on work-based learning through the Siemens Foundation. Uh, Siemens Foundation has um, funded us over several years to work with states in thinking about how contextualized learning, work-based learning. I heard some folks ask uh, some questions around career advisement and exploration uh, the last um, uh, the last session, uh, that's really something that states are trying to tackle. How can we get the resources out there to underserved populations, rural and urban? Um, so a lot of things covered in that. And then also I'll give a shout out to Strata Education Network, who you'll hear from in a minute. Uh, they are funding us to do some work with a cohort of six states uh, to, for, on better serving adults. Um, so that's really, that's really a huge uh, thing to take on, but it's better serving adults in connecting education and work, which is a clear uh, priority for Strata Education Network. I don't want to speak for you, but, uh, um, but really it's having states think about what are your solutions to better connect these populations. States are taking lots of different tactics, and that's one thing I'll emphasize today in all my comments is that um, states, when you give them the opportunity, you give them the space, and you give them the support, uh, come up with some great innovative ideas to help support um, their residents in getting better opportunities. So um, the states play a lot of uh, different roles in this space. I'll just, I'll just call out one or two uh, things that I'll refer back to in some of my um, uh, continued comments which will be they work to incentivize a space in which these innovations can grow. It's difficult to be able to incentivize, but then sort of create the right policy space and then get out of the way for regions to be able to create some of these opportunities. Um, and it's difficult to incentivize collaboration. So, um, so one thing I think that states are doing is they're recognizing the complexity of the problem. Um, a shout out to um, Aspen Institute's Ascend, uh, network, which is working with student parents or, or looking, looking at success for student parents. It's really a microcosm of some of the issues that we're facing in, in thinking about the adult workforce um, is a, a complex web of needs, uh, things around housing and food insecurity and child care and transportation and all of these things that there are state resources for, uh, but we struggle to connect them in a way that makes sense um, for the people who really need to access some of these services. So thinking of states thinking about preparing the future workforce, uh, which is a long-term problem, and you're thinking all the way from pre-K to uh, throughout your higher ed systems and training systems, it's not a short-term problem. Um, but then also the complexity of the issue and how best to serve the people that they need to serve in their state in order to get them access to the opportunities that we're talking about. So I'll pass this off. <clears throat> All right, so Reg, you took your job in San, Bern San Bernardino about three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, what did you see as your mission once you got there and how are you enacting that? So when I first got to San Bernardino County, I was asked um, what my vision for San Bernardino County was. And really, as I drew upon past experiences, I realized we at San Bernardino County, my vision for us was I wanted us to become a magnet region. 
and a magnet status is not something that's typically applied to a region. It's usually applied in healthcare where a magnet hospital systems where everyone wants to go get their healthcare from because all the great best doctors and nurses and it's a re are, are there and the, it's a research institution. Every doctor and nurse wants to work there because they want to be part of that team. Um, and every other hospital wants to be like those magnet hospitals. You, you, you know those hospitals, Johns Hopkins, um, UCLA Med Center, UCSD Med Center, all those, all those institutions are very recognizable. So I said, in San Bernardino County, we want to become that. But what's it take to become that? And now I'm applying an economic development lens to that approach. And it's, and really, we, so we, what we did was we went out and started talking to businesses around their site selection process, why they would locate a facility anywhere in the world. And the number one and number two reason for locating a facility anywhere in the world is the availability of the labor force and the quality of that labor force. That suggests to you that economic development and growth in a region, everyone is going to be invested in a talent production system. There's other key factors as to why businesses succeed and grow in a region. And those are like environmental factors like safety, quality of life, entertainment options, all of those things. So the reality for us in San Bernardino County is understanding that there's this bigger ecosystem that suggests that you can grow as a region in a healthy, um, fruitful way that's good for both residents and businesses. That's why collaborations began to become a key priority for us in our region. So I would say this is that um, one, of the, one of the key factors for San Bernardino County, aside from the, the fact that we're so large geographically, we're 20,000 square miles, we're, it's just a massive county. So we've got distinctly different sub-regions of the county that, that act completely different from one another. But one of the key factors for us is that we know that our economy is not just growing, and we're one of the fastest growing economies in the entire country, but we are diversifying. But one of, the, one of our largest industry sector by far is distribution warehouse logistics. We're one of the top five hubs in the world in distribution logistics. Um, we know that we are, that industry sector is highly susceptible to automations, technologies, technological advances, drones, driverless cars, machines, all of those things. And we know that that's coming to our world. But we're ill-prepared from a talent production perspective to re respond to that. So that, skill, that proverbial skills gap, if those skills emerge in our marketplace, it only grows for us. So we have to actually think about systems, education systems and talent production systems that are much more predictive in nature in the context of where skills are heading in our economy and where the opportunities for our residents are going to exist in the future and start building those pathways to that, to sort of snap into that economy in the future. And so as a, do you see your role as an intermediary in bringing together different stakeholders and creating Absolutely. An intermediary, a convener, or an accelerant. Um, I, I actually see the county in two, in two roles. One is we have a lot of great work that's happening already in and throughout our entire county. Um, we have some pretty disruptive minds, some real innovative thinkers in our region. Part of the county government's role is to take those folks that are doing some phenomenal work and begin to connect them to the other actors in that work. Is really saying that you're doing phenomenal work on your own, 
But what happens when we surround you by a lot of other people that are doing phenomenal work and then try and help them identify where the similarities are in their work? Um, the second thing from a talent production, talent acquisition perspective for the county government is we are also one of the largest employers in the region. We have 22,000 employees. We realize there's not a single kid that's going through K-12 education that, that is waking up every morning going, I can't wait to become a county worker. <laughs> we realize that. And we, so we have to understand that we're also competing for talent in our world as well. So we have to engage with the education system as a business. We have slews of departments, every, you name it, every occupation under the sun works for us. We have to engage with the K-12 education system so that we begin to create early exposure programs, skills development programs, so that we can begin to pipeline workers to us so that they understand what great opportunities are for the county as well. Um, so, Daryl, you have a sort of a unique viewpoint on this because you're kind of at the, I mean, I would call it a 30,000 degree, 30,000 foot uh, point looking at all of these programs that are working or not working on national level, on a national level or, you know, in their regions or local areas. What do you, but though on another level, it kind of just, it's kind of just uh, depressing to me that we need philanthropy in this uh in this area and that public and private sector resources can't do the job themselves. What is, uh, what is the role that funders play and how do, you how do you sort of think about your role? Great, thank you. Uh, well, first, I'm glad that, I'm happy to be here and glad that philanthropy is here because I would need a new job. So Jenny and folks would have to help me <laughs> <laughs> to be reskilled so I can find a new job. Um, but it's exciting to be here with all of you. Uh, I. Um, uh, I, I would say this, uh, we at Stroud Education Network believe that uh, the network effect is a way in which we are going to drive real meaningful change in partnerships and collaboration in, in this country. And so for us, for those who don't know us, we're a social impact nonprofit organization. We're not a foundation. We believe in, you know, a mission of helping, you know, consumers, you know, to find their pathway, to find what's valuable for them in life define what's real for them through what we call completion with a purpose. And completion with a purpose means helping consumers to find that career pathway opportunity that's best suited for them through education by allowing employers and education providers to be at the core of this education to employment pathway. And so for us, we began to think about, you know, the ways in which we could work with states. We have a wonderful partnership with, with NGA and with ECS and working with 12 states now to try to figure out how can we develop those conditions of success that exist. So we as a funder feel as though we should be more responsible because 10 years ago, what, what would happen? I don't know if there are any funders in the room. Any funders in the room? Okay, good. Um, it's just me. So good. All right. Um, I'll talk a little bit about school then. <laughs> um, we thought that if we found something good, we would just hover over it, talk about how great it is, spend our resources on it. And that's what happened. What, what responsible partners and communities should do now is, one, figure out what the issues really are. We feel as though that happens better at the regional and local level. We need to figure out what players in that space want to have a role in that. So we believe that it happens when these things occur, when there's a good public-private sector you know, partnership where there's education providers, there's public policy, there's government, 
their employers, their community leaders who are all well baked into what the issue is and want to come up with a solution together. And we've seen plenty of examples of how that can work well. You know, they're doing some great work in San Diego at the Workforce Partnership, some great work in Boston um, at BayPath and the Commonwealth Corp and, you know, many different initiatives. But I do want to focus on, you know, one thing in this conversation. We heard this earlier uh, from many of the panelists before about ecosystem. You know, it isn't about programs. It is not about programs. We cannot scale programs. We have to be very focused on how we develop and cultivate ecosystems. And I do want to give a shout out to Jamie and Amanda uh, at Upskill American Aspen Institute because they helped us when we started working on this. It's not enough to, to know who the employers are. What are those employer needs? How do they plan to develop talent and how can we help them, right? It isn't, it isn't about making them feel bad about this. It is what, what intermediaries can we bring into play? How can we build you know, bridges to success? And how can we take the barriers that, that existed down? And when we see those types of things, you know, funders would just say, oh, you guys have it figured out. See you later. We're gonna, we're gonna go about our business and we're gonna move away. It is we saw it and we said, no, what we need to do is we need to shine a light on success. And what Jamie and Amanda at Upskill, great job of helping us to do is, let's meet with the employers, let's meet with those community leaders, let's meet with those policymakers, those executives and say, what do the conditions of success mean? What are they? And how can we begin to help others to see that? You cannot do this by yourself. We had to come up, we had to come to terms with that as, as funders. We felt like we could because we had money, right? I worked for a large foundation before. We felt like, hey, you got money, you can rule the world. Yay, let's go, confetti parade, right? We fixed it. No, no. We have to figure out ways in which we collaborate and work together. We have to share what success looks like, and we have to be willing to be open to help others to get there. So you've kind of perfectly framed the next question, which is what, what are the conditions of success? What makes a partnership work? Wow, that's a that's a good that's question. That's for all of you. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Do uh, you want to go first? Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, I guess Lady, I will. Ladies first. <laughs> it seems like a cop out, but okay. It is. Um, okay, so I will harken back to the complexity of the issues. First of all, um, when governors are looking at incentivizing partnerships or setting up the right policy environment um, for these partnerships to thrive. Um, first of all, they need to be a part of it. Uh, the governors need to incentivize it, they need to champion it, they need to applaud it, they need to put some resources towards it. They need to say, if this is our priority, then I've got, you know, I really hate the phrase skin in the game, but until I find a better one, I'm going to use it. Um, Sorry, when you say incentivized, are you talking about tax breaks? Are you talking about funding? There's actually, there's a lot of different strategies that are out there, and it's really across the aisle. Um, governors are thinking about ways, first of all, to incentivize. Um, in Iowa, um, there's a, a program about incentivizing, uh, doing a match for um, upskilling workers. Um, so a match for those employers who invest in their current incumbent workers. Um, we also see that across uh, in Texas. Um, we see it in a couple different um, ways that it's coming down. Um, there's different structures, of course, to every state approach, but tax incentives are kind of a way that 
it's the language of business. Um, and so it's a way that they can speak to the needs of business while also speaking to their talent development needs. Um, a lot of these are run out of a governor's office and it'll have lots of different names. Workforce innovation, workforce, you know, brand new ideas, I don't know. You know, those, <laughs> they, they will give it a, a really exciting name right. um, that talks about how, like the new things they're gonna try. And this is, a, this is one we've seen a lot of from both Democrats and Republicans is thinking about what kind of incentives get employers to the table, especially when thinking about upskilling. Uh, but it's important that the governor's also at the table. You know, and is, is setting the table for these conversations to happen. Um, also, I'll harken back to um, intermediaries being a key player in some of these strategies at the state level. This is a, an element that we've found um, at NGA is an important element of any of our projects. So not just education and workforce projects, but for sustainability of work across transition. So um, in political life transition is gonna happen. Um, and you're gonna have turnover in key leadership. And we've seen so many great efforts that have been led by a dynamic agency lead or um, a great uh, a governor who's really on board. Uh, you, you see this and then you see it fizzle out as soon as they leave um, because they haven't had that sustainability planning um, and framework built in, which is buy-in from the region and it's people understanding their stake in the collaboration, how they benefit from it, um, how they contribute to it, what their place is in it, and how they're connecting with um, the other folks that are in the partnerships. So having a vision that unites, uh, having a plan for sustainability, and really thinking about how to strategically engage regional intermediaries to think about, and whether or not those are state um, entities or like state related entities. I know many states um, utilize universities or centers at universities to play an intermediary role. Others are not-for-profits that are not connected to uh, government organizations. Whatever the model is, um, somebody who gets up and thinks about this collaboration in the morning and has agendas and, and keeps the meetings and gets everybody on the same board and reminds us of our of our shared goals and helps agencies work together better. I used to be at a state agency in uh, the state of Illinois, which I loved, um, but found many times while we were all state employees, all state supposedly working towards the same goals, sometimes it was very difficult for us to our, you know, regulate ourselves in speaking the same language. And the, ex the outside voice helped us um, get on the same page and work towards those goals. So I think governors are really thinking about how the incentives that they develop um, can support those types of intermediaries, but then also um, really concrete things like those tax breaks or those incentives to think about upskilling, especially uh, that incumbent worker workforce. Um, in Texas, um, I know Walmart was up here last time and I don't remember if it was Walmart or Walmart Foundation, which I know are different. Um, but in Texas, I know Walmart is supporting a state effort around upskilling retail and customer facing workers, not just at Walmart, but outside of that is really helping the Texas Workforce Board think about what does upskilling look like across a whole sector in which they play a key role. So it's partnerships like that that governors are thinking about how they can play a role without creating the innovation themselves, but really giving the space to hear from the regions. Okay. Um, Reg, as someone who 
is one of those intermediaries, what do you think makes these work or, or not work? So what we've found is uh, we've been really trying to think about how we connect the entirety of the, in, of the whole ecosystem. And what we found is that um, people come to the table for very, very different reasons. Um, and finding common ground is not necessarily our goal, is finding an outcome that's good for every organization is our goal. And so um, what we've realized is that um, everybody will buy into the same uh, system if they're all going to get their their outcome what they what they're hoping to get out of it an example is in california well i'll just speak for san san Bernardino county we, i was having a conversation with um one of the chancellors for one of our community college districts and he said we have three major priorities that we're we're haggling with and that's going to drive our entire agenda for the future that is matriculation remediation and completion those three main priorities were going to drive all of their investments and all of their activities and all their strategies for that community college district. And I said to him, Bruce, remediation, matriculation, completion. Do you realize likely that all of your answers are not going to be found in the community college system? They're going to be found in K-12. And if you're, if you're trying, if you're remediating in the community college system, there's something that can be done in K-12 that prevents you from having to remediate. If you're, if you're connecting better and deeper into the K-12 system, you'll have natural matriculation. So we went through this entire dialogue around this. And so we now have these career pathways that we're investing in, in one of the most distressed regions in the United States, by the way, um, that go all the way down to the kindergarten level. We have career pathways starting in the kindergarten level where kids are getting early exposure and even skills development down to kindergarten, first, second, third grade. And it gains in, in sophistication as they go, go up in grade levels. In their junior year, 100% of all these kids in career pathways get concurrently enrolled in the community college. That actually began the process of not just the K-12 system doing something different, but the community college system beginning to change the way they look at their work and do things differently in, in response to how they're acting with the K-12 system to the degree that we now have juniors in, in high school walking around campus. And these are kids that come from family histories where the entire family line struggled to graduate high school, much less even sniffed college. We have juniors in high school walking around campus, pulling out their college ID card and putting it in the friend's face and going, look, I'm a college student. Imagine what that looks and what that means to that student. They have forevermore changed the per perspective on what they think that they can achieve in life. And that, that is very different than the realities they're being raised in today. Just because we started talking about what is it that all of the different actors are going to get out of this system we're building together? So I would say this is that the, what makes these collaborations work most is that when we really learn about the things that we're trying to solve, each independent organization, the things that they're trying to haggle with and trying to solve, and we honor those, we bring those to the table and we build a system together that 
resolves those issues for those organizations. Because if we're talking about sustainability, if sans that, it is just something that is a really, really great idea for us to be involved in. It's not part of our makeup and our success as an individual organization that's coming to the table. And Daryl, when you're looking through applications and RFPs, what, what jumps out to you as a program that's got potential and is worth putting your dollars into? Yeah, so I think three things that I think we could add to this conversation. I think the first one was we as funders had to do one thing. We had to start listening with our ears. Very, very important process to listen and not listen with our mouths. Very difficult to hear people when you're talking, right? So we had, to, we had to truthfully listen to what the issues were, understand what the conditions were like, understand what are you trying to solve for? Like that's the first thing that we had to do. I think the second thing that we had that we can add to this was you know, if, if many of us begin to think about how we come up with a solution, it's a heck of a lot easier, right, if we say to a state or to a, uh, a mayor or to a county executive like Reg to say, we're willing to try something with you if you're willing to tell us how it's going to be sustainable down the road. So we're willing to put, you know, three or four million dollars in with other funders and say, we know that these specific sets of interventions work as a part of, again, we talk about ecosystems. We have another issue that we're trying to deal with and trying to break the barriers down for. Are we willing to add a few more dollars as a collective and try something? And if it works, what will you do? So we, we had to get to that point where we were willing to say, let us be the innovative capital that comes in and try things. And sometimes they just don't work, right? You know, your first, how many of you failed your first driving test? Honestly, I did. All right. So, right. So, right, just, some things just don't work the first time, and you try it out, right? So we tried it out. So that, so that's what we have have to offer as a part of this. The, the third thing I'll add to this is this is really, really critical uh, for all of us to understand. It is, we we had to understand what roles people were going to play, and then as always, you know, you get a collaborative together and there's a whole lot of chatter, like there's a whole lot of chit chat going on. Everybody's talking about how great we work together. We love each other, kumbaya, right? All that good stuff. S'mores, you know, confetti, right? Parade again, right? No, it, it's, <laughs> it's we, we've got to get to that place where we are actually committed to this. So some of the things that we decided to do, uh, and I wanted to say a shout out to my good colleague, Chris Gidry, who's here, who's our VP of workforce. He was hired to do this work, so that's why he's here. And one of my other colleagues is here who helps us with this work, Marie Cheney, I saw her. She's a president CEO of KLR, uh, Council of uh, Adult and Experiential Learning, which is one of our affiliate companies. So thank you guys for being here. But we talk about this stuff. We talk about what evidence are we looking for. And we were, we're not looking for you to talk about it anymore. We want MOUs, we want contracts, and we want to know specifically who are all the partners by name and what are they going to do? And there's a few governors and there's a few mayors who got involved in this and a few county executives who got involved in this and signed that on the dotted line and said, we're involved, not a letter of support. I'm talking about an MOU, a contract, a commitment that we're going to do this together. And when we begin to see things like that, it helped us to understand that you were there. And when we got on the phone, which is something that we didn't do, we had these Zoom calls when we did the RFP. And it was awesome to see the groups that really work together because you could hear the components of, you know, how they connect and work together. We call it connective tissue at Strata. But then we, Chris knows, we got on the phone with some folks and it was, well, actually we thought you guys were doing that. No, 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 we're gonna do this. Oh, that's right, we talked about that last week. No, you're not ready. 
so we so we had to be honest so so forth i'm sorry we had to be honest with ourselves to say let's focus on what's ready and how we can move forward and those that are not we'll just have a different conversation with them mm -hmm. um one thing that i as i read about and talk to people about uh career and career and technical education and workforce training in this country the system more and more strikes me as one that's built for crisis management um it's meant to help people who are displaced, people who are laid off. We're not so great at thinking long-term. And I'm wondering in your roles, how do you encourage both employers, education providers, and others to think about training and workforce development as long-term investment, not just, I need to fill this seat quickly, or I need to put this person back to work? me again okay <laughs> all right um, I'll just have a, a, like a quick answer to that a, a way I approach the work that I do is with the political reality in mind that I mentioned that sometimes folks are only there for a couple years and then we have to move on so we have to what we have to do is uh, policymakers and stakeholders have to help create a plan for uh, long the long-term investment and the long-term view with short-term wins. So you have the reality is you need political wins at the beginning, whether or not that's the collaboration, whether or not that's um, how many jobs were created, how many employers you got signed on, the great conversations you're having, you gotta, those have to be built in. Uh, there have to be wins for people to, to start and to engage. Um, but then you have to figure out what the environment is for the long-term investment. And then thinking about things like um, the future of work, um, that's everybody's talking about that right now. Yeah. Uh, future of work. And Estrada has a, a whole division thinking about uh, the yep. future of work, and some um, some really great reports. We also are doing a future of work project. You should check us out. We're also very good. Um, <laughs> so um, <clears throat> we're thinking about the future of work, but that's not just who needs a job right now. That's what our whole systems are going to look like. So that's a long-term fix that's thinking about how are we going to leverage things like possible reauthorization of uh, Workforce Innovation and Opportunities Act, uh, Perkins 5, the CTE legislation that was just um, renewed and states are working right now on their long-term plans around that effort. We're seeing some cool innovative ideas come out of that planning process. Um, leveraging ESSA, so thinking about K-12 and what levers we have under that federal legislation, how can we change what we're doing to meet with long-term needs? So short-term realities that we have to deal with in a political world, um, but then also working together to think about this is going to outlast me, this is going to outlast my colleagues, this is something we're investing in together and moving us in a direction that's adaptable and changeable, um, but provides a framework within which states can move forward and uh, start some of this work knowing that some things aren't going to work. Yep. Uh, you're going to have to change some stuff. Uh, we were talking before about how a lot of states, and I mean, I used to be in Illinois, we were just as bad at this as everybody else's. We start a lot of pilots, and then we pilot for a while and be like, <laughs> we're like, that was really good. And then we just stopped doing it. Yeah. And we didn't seemingly learn anything from it or take that and you know, scale it to do anything else. Um, we would just pilot something else. Um, so understanding how these innovations need to be cultivated 
um, and they, how they need to grow or die <laughs> if they need to die. Um, but the good ones need to be nurtured and what that means in the political environment and how we can, um, how we can truly make innovation live um, through partnerships with local regions and with philanthropic partners who sometimes give us, you know, the kick that we need uh, to really start thinking about how we can invest in, in some of these innovative practices without really risking very much on the state's side because we have that infusion yep. of support, um, but really giving some things a try, not being afraid to fail. So pretty great. So for San Bernardino County, um, we, we realized that, uh, for example, career pathways were in all of our schools. Uh, our desire was to accelerate the pace of growth of all of these career pathways in all of these schools. Because if you can increase the proliferation, then you're actually contextualizing and, uh, and creating applied learning environments throughout your entire education system, which is never ever a bad thing from an economic development lens perspective. But then what, what, what we realized was that we have all these career pathways in San Bernardino County, and the number one career pathway that like 40% of all the students want to attend media arts. You know why? Because every kid wants to become a YouTube star. <laughs> but there's not YouTube star occupations in San Bernardino County. Here's our disconnect, right? So we realize that we have to create a, uh, an intelligence system that's really informing the growth and the development of programming in our region. So we now create, we, we've, all workforce boards all across the country already do this. They already, they study their regional economy, but that's usually a rear view facing study. They tell you what was growing last year, the top 10 industry clusters, the top 10 occupations, and then they create investment strategies around their training programs this year based on what was last year's data. What we're doing is something a little differently. We're doing that because it's, it's necessary to inform the transactions and the, the job, the employment uh, training that's necessary for today. But we are also creating a level of predictive analytics around our studies that suggests where skills are heading in the future. I talked about this earlier. We're bringing together business, business focus groups on an ongoing basis and talking about the future of work, not necessarily in, in the context of asking a business, what do you think the future of work looks like? We're beginning to facilitate dialogue around what's happening in your environment, in your work environment, and how's that changing? I said that distribution, warehouse, and logistics were um, a, a key industry sector for us. One of our board members, our workforce board members, is an owner of a logistics company. And he says, the warehouse of today is not the same warehouse you, your grandfather used to know. And I asked him to expand on that. And, it, and the building, the warehouses are, have offices in them. They have IT workers, human resources folks, all these office personnel inside of these warehouses that didn't exist back in yesteryear. But the key to it is he said, we are, we are working with a company called Fetch and we are beginning to install robotics into our warehouses. And I said, why are you doing that? Are you trying to get replaced workers? He said, actually, no. We're actually trying to increase our throughput in our warehouses. This is about increasing our productivity. And then the, another developer, a developer who builds these warehouses, says, 
we're beginning to be asked to build warehouses not with 90 foot clearance, which means 90 feet in the air is your ceiling. And I asked him why. He said, because all of these logistics firms want to put more volume through their facilities. Now, if you think about that and you under, really understand the dynamics there, is that robot, if, you put, if you put inventory 90 feet in the air, you're gonna require a machine or a robot to go up and get it. All of this thing is about productivity. And if you understand what's actually happening in the business environment, and you only can get there through real intimate conversations, if you understand what's happening in a business environment, you're gonna realize the former, the person who used to pick goods off of shelves and put them in a basket so that they can ship them to you now has to interact with robots, software, machines, all of these things, and a whole nother workforce is beginning to emerge, people who have to repair those machines because if the robot arm breaks down, someone's gotta fix it and it has to be done today. So all of those skills are now going to emerge in San Bernardino County and what we have to do as a county government is ensure that our talent production system understands what's ever changing. And I said that I told the story to Jamie and I also told the story to you is I got to I got to talk at one of these future of work discussions and I talked about chasing the skills gap. And so we always try and chase a skills gap that we're never going to mitigate because it's actually a, a dynamic issue. But in real life, when I'm chasing something and it stays ahead of me and it starts to go around that curb, the first thought that runs through my head is how do I cut through this park and, and cut it off so that I can catch it over there because I'm catching that sucker. If we apply the same principle to skills development and understanding our regional economies, we're gonna become much more predictive in nature and really understand what's happening in the business environment that, suggest, that gives you a purview of what bend skills are heading towards so you can cut it off at the past. Does that make sense? Um, I, have, I have many more questions, but I think it's time to turn it over to the audience uh, and hear from you. I can just raise your hand if you have a question. Yes, there are people coming around with mics. Okay. Uh, in San Bernardino County, um, what is being done to chase the soft skills gap? Is there even a soft skills gap? Is that part of the thinking? So, uh, I mean, and this might be a personal belief of mine, but I just, I'm just one of the people from the old school that I don't think you can learn soft skills in a classroom. I think you have to experience it and it's a real experiential skill set. So one of the key key metrics for us is we're we're connect we're our intent is to have 100% of all all kids in our K12 education system in career pathways and 100% of all seniors in high school before they leave high school will get some kind of work experience with internship before leaving high school because studies show that the trajectory of a young person that has work experience before leaving high school, it changes drastically. Accumulation of wealth, types of jobs, even whether or not they buy a house changes. The statistics change on those students. So we're, su we're suggesting that by creating work experience and work-based learning environments where businesses are completely engaged in the education system, kids are learning those soft skills and they're actually learning, learning critical thinking and decision-making skills as well. Great. 
Yes. Hello. Um, my name is Gina and I work for the Carlisle Area Chamber and my role with the Chamber is actually to connect the education institutions or um, specifically the two area high schools with our business community and wanted to ask you some innovative approaches um, that you guys have found successful or that work for the younger ages. It's my understanding that that grade five is really kind of a key time to grasp the skills that are developing and get the parent involvement as well, but they're not ready to do some real hands-on career exploration like the high school students are. So it's my role to try to create these opportunities and what innovative things have you found successful? Uh, well, just a couple things, and uh, a lot of places or regions are thinking about the same things that you are, and that's uh, I've seen that a lot have been um, able to review some early drafts of Perkins CTE plans, and they're really they're expanding um, some of that funding to go down to the middle grades and think about okay, so how can we get the, you know these students in that uh, in that space earlier? So thinking even lower than that, uh, I think where a lot of places are starting is project-based learning. So still in the classroom, engage as an employer to bring a problem to the students um, for them to solve within their classroom, but with engagement of an employer that comes from outside and talks about you know, their industry, the opportunities there, the types of problems they face, and bring them an actual, like a real problem that they're thinking about and hear from the students. So it's a place where you can have um, employer engagement in a more controlled environment. Um, so for that age group, seems to work really well. Um, I would highlight the work of Project Lead the Way. Um, they are um, started out, I know when I first was exposed to them, they were very much focused on engineering pathways, but they've expanded to um, more broadly STEM pathways. Um, and they go all the way down, I believe, to pre-K. Um, and some of the resources that they have for teachers and to connect you to employers. Um, so there's resources out there to do that, but I think usually when they're thinking about continuums, a lot of times we're thinking about exposure. And for the younger kids, it's just like, here's all the different kinds of jobs, um, you know, because I wanted to be a vet until I realized that it would make me cry every day, and then I just <laughs> wouldn't do that. Um, so exposure to well, you know, what these types of things are when you're younger, and then the project base is engaging them in a way that's still in the environment that the classroom can control. And, um, and the employer feels a little bit more like they understand their role with, those, with that age group. Um, there's also some states that are setting up systems in which to um, have employers say, I'll be a mentor or I'll come to a classroom and do a, a talk. So they put themselves out there in a system that the state has set up to say, how could you engage? And then the employer will say, here's all the ways I can engage across these different grades. So it's a way that um, I believe North Carolina is launching that right now. Um, I believe Washington, the Career Connect Washington might actually do some of that. Don't hold me that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, ways in which districts can access those opportunities from employers and the ways in which they can be helped. 
Well, can I add something to that? Um, and I totally appreciate the fact that a chamber is actually tackling that issue because I, I think that um, business engagement is a responsibility across all business serving organizations, associations, all of those folks. But in San Bernardino County, what our, our um, county schools have started doing is, um, and there's many software packages that are so software solutions that do this, but they're using a, a platform called Nepris to actually bring the employer into the classroom. So they're actually having, gathering a bunch of classrooms together and they're all logging in online and having an employer give a virtual tour of their, of their business and go around their business and talk about all of the work that they do. And then they do a question answer uh, pro part of the program. And there's some like couple hundred students that are able to ask questions. And they're all, all these young people, all the way down to like kindergarten level, they're, they're, ask, they're firing all of these questions at this employer and they, they have to aggregate them in and put these questions out there. And you know, the number one question is, how much do you make? <laughs> and, and, but, but they go through this process of really beginning to expose young people to all of the different opportunities inside of our region so that these kids can potentially envision themselves working in that industry at some point. Yeah, we did the same. Uh, there's a group, uh, Junior Achievement, who you probably all know. They have uh, uh, J Career Fairs. And what they do is they have middle schoolers from around, I think it's about 12 counties around in Indiana. And they bring them to the state fairgrounds for two days worth of on uh, hands-on sort of experiential learning around different types of workforce. So you have a lot of healthcare, you have financial services, you have construction, you have plumbing. And so the, the students with their teachers get a chance to go around for two days and it helps the, the curriculum, it's a part of a curriculum in the schools, but it helps them to figure out what career pathway they want to take as they begin to think about high school and then beyond. So it's a, it's a great program that offers some opportunity at least to, to experience what it is, talk to real people who do it, uh, and they do it, they've been doing it every year for three years now. So things like that are very helpful. Next question. I'm Bob Hershey. I'm a consultant. I'm the author of the books, All the Math You Need to Get Rich and How to Think with Numbers. And I'm wondering uh, what is being done in your programs to give people the basic math for things like percentages and probability and interest calculations that they will need in their work. Do you want to start this time? Sure. <laughs> we'll just keep passing the time. Um, actually, uh, so we, as I said before, we're actually creating applied um, uh, contextualized learning environments all throughout our education system. And I think that that's critical because um, when I was learning in grade school to learn how to measure right angles and calculate uh, distances, um, I did it out of a book. And then when I came up to my answer, I turned to the back of the book and saw the answer in the back of the book to, um, to determine if I did it right, right? Well, actually, for me, it was more like, look at the answer in the back of the book first, <laughs> then go at the problem. However, um, kids these days in our, in our education system, they're building things. And they're building things, and then they're having to measure things um, you, you know, because they're building things. And they're calculating angles, calculating distances, all of those things. 
all of that contextualized and applied learning that we're putting into this programming is causing greater absorption and greater understanding of the principles, the education principles, and exactly what you're talking about is that they're not taking it out of a book and then going into real life and trying to figure out how do I use what I learned there and trying to relearn re re it again. They're actually understanding how it's applied in the world of work. I'll say that um, like two things I'll point out about math, which is, um, is a challenge for states to think about filling a lot of the jobs in the future are STEM related jobs uh, and they require math. You, it's the reality of it, you have, to, you have to do math, which I don't love math, so it's not fun for me to talk about most of the time, but um, people are thinking about, states are thinking about math pathways, um, that not everybody needs to take the same pathway um, to get to where they need to go. Um, so an understanding of what's needed for the different fields, whether it's a calculus pathway that has an algebra pathway or um, a quantitative analysis pathway. Um, so really thinking, and CTE math um, is really the contextualized learning um, that is embedded into um, a lot of CTE programs. Um, states are thinking about that for high school graduation requirements. What does the math pathway look like? And then one thing I'll, I'll throw out that is also a challenge that states are facing is um, really thinking about the adult basic education um, group of students. They are many times left out of larger education conversations at the state level, um, but they usually have the most mission-driven folks uh, who are engaged in those agencies. Um, and that population and trying to get them into really good paying jobs and get them into pathways where they can have further opportunity, math is one of the biggest barriers. Um, so really thinking about how we approach uh, getting them the skills that they need is a huge challenge. And it's ones that, uh, one that hasn't been solved. Um, but I think the contextualization that you mentioned is certainly a strategy that states are really thinking about in some of these education programs that they're um, developing for these populations. Um, and thinking about what's appropriate um, rather than applying the same uh, framework um, to all those populations uh, that we would to somebody who may be heading in uh, into a field that, that requires more rigorous math. I'm gonna go with E, all the above. <laughs> Great yeah, I think we are out of time. Okay, unfortunately we're out of time, but thank you very much for your participation and thanks to our panelists. Thank you. Thank you.